evening. Good morning. So we're in Luke chapter 18 again this week. If you will, head that way in your Bible or device of some sort. <clears throat> Things the Apostle Paul probably never said when preaching. Uh, right? Anyway, uh, chapter 18 will be starting in verse 9 here in a minute, but I do want to set this up a little bit. Uh, Jesus is here. <clears throat> he, he's telling a, a parable uh, you might have heard it called, particularly if you're older, the Pharisee and the publican. Any of you ever heard it referred to as that before? Um, yes, this age is most of you, Zach. You must be at least 60. Um, <clears throat> publican is an old Latin word. I guess all Latin words are old Latin words, but it's an old word that means tax collector, right? So there's the mystery solved, publican, tax collector. Uh, that's what it is. So the parable that we looked at last week the one, uh, the persistent widow, in, invited us to pray to God. It taught us the value of prayer, and it reminded us that God Himself is going to bring about justice for His elect in the last day, at the end times. The parable today is is building off of that with this concept of prayer, right? It, it's it's instead though teaching us what posture of heart we are to come to God in prayer with, um, and and we'll see that. It's it's also giving us an answer to, to the question, this question, who is righteous before God? Who is righteous in God's sight? We, or, or we might say, who is justified? Who, who has received the mercy of God in salvation? Who? Um, so follow along. We're just going to jump right in. Verse 18, and I, I do want you to know that the first pronoun there, just for context, is referring to Jesus. But uh, chapter 18, verse 19 of the Gospel of Luke. <clears throat> He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the, to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The grass withers, the flower fades. <coughs> Let us pray. Father, having read this text of your holy scripture, we now ask that you would grant our minds the ability to understand it rightly and to grant our hearts the ability to believe it and be changed by it. Father, please reveal your holiness and reveal our self-righteousness and make us humble-hearted people for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So it's a parable. Sometimes parables are real stories that Jesus is telling. Sometimes they're stories that he just makes up to make a point. We don't know whether this is a real one or not. It's not of any importance whether it is because uh, the reason that Jesus is telling this story is to teach his disciples about something, to, to teach us something about who God is and something about who we are and how we relate to God and, and come to him. That's the whole point of it. Uh, in verse 9 then, we, we see that Jesus is very clear what sort of person he, he wants this parable to impact, who he wants it to inform, to challenge, to change. Uh, and the first one of those, the first type of person 
or the first aspect of this type of person is those who trust in themselves, those who believe that, that, that I'm good, I'm righteous, right? And, and the second he tells this to are, are, are those that view others with this, this contempt uh, of the way they treat others. Now, contempt's one of those words we generally know, right, in some sort of context, but, but, but do you know what contempt means? Could you really define this in any way? You see, contempt is when you look at someone and, and what you see is, is that they are worth less than you. Or, or what you see is that they are worth, worth less altogether, right? It's, it's like Draco Malfoy looked at Hermione Granger, if that's a context for you. It's the way that, that fat people or fit people look at fat people, if you've ever experienced that on either side. It's the way that Yankee fans look at everyone it's the way I look at Yankee fans. Um, and, and if we're honest, really honest, I bet every single one of us know what it's like to look at someone with contempt. Because you've been there, you've done that. You might not like that about yourself, but it's just a reality. It, it's that pride in self and that disgust with somebody else. And, and you see, but by telling this parable, Jesus is, is condemning the sin of self-righteousness or, or pride, as, as, as we see it called at times. Um, that attitude that we, we may hear when, 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 when describing. You ever heard some, some professing Christian describe this way? Oh, oh, oh she, just, she just thinks she's all holier than thou, right? It, it, it describes that. that. That's a person who's generally um, full of contempt towards other. That's how you get described that way most of the time. Uh, and so in the parable, what we're seeing here is <clears throat> there's two men, two characters, just like last week, uh, and they go up to the temple to pray. The temple was actually elevated, so they went up, whether they were already in Jerusalem or whether they're talking about coming from home. Either way, they're going up, and they go to the temple because this is where heaven met earth. It, this is the place for prayer. It's the center of Jewish worship. It's where you go. It, it's also the place where sacrifices were being made for the sins of the people. And, and these two men in the story are very, very different. One is a Pharisee, the, the, the highest in society. I feel like we keep having to describe these, these characters over and over again, or these types of people in Jewish society, right? Uh, but the Pharisee is, is the very highest. And listen, <clears throat> you and I view Pharisees different than people did back then. They, they weren't thought of as phony. They weren't thought of as disingenuous like we think of Pharisees today. In this time, Pharisees were really thought they, they truly holy, like, like genuinely so, le legitimately respected by most people <clears throat> because they were known for understanding God's word. They were known by, by living according to God's word. They were known to just be more holy than, than, than other people were. Uh, on the other hand, as we mentioned in previous passages as well, the, the tax collector, this is the lowest in society. Just about everyone looked down on him with contempt. Uh, they were considered traitors among the Jewish people because of the way they worked with the Romans against their own people. Uh, they were typically dishonest. They were typically greedy. It, it's hard to put them into modern terms. It just is. But, but, but to get the sense of how you might view them, it's kind of like we think of drug dealers or pimps or pornographers, so someone in society that is, is, is making their money by doing great harm to both the individual and society as a whole. And, and now you might be tempted to think that, that maybe this tax collector is the exception, right? That's Jesus sees something in him. He's really a good guy, as, as though you can like, 
I don't know if you're like me, sometimes I'll make up this backstory for people as though, you know, he's a good guy and he was just forced into this terrible job because he has to care for his disabled sister who's desperate in need. He's, he's just a good guy in a bad situation. Don't do that. Don't, don't, don't let your mind go there to think he's the exception. This tax collector is not the, the, the exception. In fact, Jesus wants us to view this man <clears throat> according to his professional reputation. That's why the only thing you know about him is his professional uh, designation, right? And, and it's, we, we've got to view him that way if we're going to learn what Jesus has to teach us from this passage. And so what I'm saying is that <clears throat> you and I would not like this tax collector, in fact, it's very likely that, that most of us would stand right next to the Pharisee and look on him with contempt as well. This traitor of our people. We'd be better off if he didn't exist. You know, we would have looked on him with, with Malfoy-level contempt as well. We just would have. And, and so then when we first see how the Pharisee prays, or first we see how the Pharisee prays in the temple, he, he's standing, standing this common posture for prayer, and based on what we learn later, he's further up, closer to the altar, closer to the front, because he feels comfortable there, right? Surely God accepts me. I can get as close as I want. I mean, listen again to his prayer in verse 11. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, here's the thing. Don't, don't imagine this as, as insincere, right? Don't, don't picture him like some obvious villain in a movie that's just saying this stuff, and even he knows it's not true. He's absolutely genuine here. He is, he is legitimately thankful that he's not like so many of these un, other sinful people around him. And again, to try to put this into our modern equivalent, it, it would be like you praying generally, God, thank you that I'm not a drug dealer, that I'm not a, a prostitute or a mobster, that, I, that I'm not any of these, these things we might throw into that category. Now, if you think of it in those terms, it's really not that crazy of a prayer, is it? But then if you look closer at, at his prayer, we, we begin to realize it's really not much of a prayer at all. How, how many of you have heard the, the, the mnemonic ACTS, A-C-T-S, uh, as kind of a directive for prayer, the parts of prayer, right? The, the A means adoration, the way that we, we praise God for who He is. The, the C means confession of our sins. The, the T is for thanksgiving. The S means supplication. Not a word we use, but it fits in Acts. Um, meaning that, that we ask God for something, right? Either for yourself or for another person. Uh, look at this man's prayer, right? It includes no adoration, no praise of God at all. It, it contains no confession of sin, there's no supplication for anything at all. There is a little bit of tea for Thanksgiving if you really made an argument for it. But, but really at the heart, even that is him just saying, God, thanks for making me awesome. Uh, unlike this disgusting individual. Now let me list off all the ways I'm awesome, right? Uh, it, it's not a real good prayer in that way. It's not even much of a prayer at all. Now, did, did, did you notice that there is, what there is a lot of in this prayer? The, the letter I. I. Five egocentric uses of the word I. He, he comes to God with this list. Look at all these things that I have accomplished. I mean, look at it. I thank you that I am not like other men. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. It's a personal resume of his own good works. Now, 
Jews were required to go without food, to, to fast as a way of participating in, in a, a festival once a year, one time, one out of how many days are there? 300 and I always mix it up with baseball. <clears throat> um, 162, 365, they're close in my math brain. Uh, on the Day of Atonement, that's the only time, right? It's laid out in Leviticus, Leviticus 16, if you care about it. Uh, it is the only time that it was required for the Jewish people to actually fast. Uh, however, fasting is encouraged <clears throat> when accompanying prayer, when repenting of sin, when mourning. But, but this Pharisee wants God to know, even though it's required only once, I do it 99 times more than required. How about that? You know, as though fasting somehow merited something from God. Praise, I don't know what he's looking for, right? He, he also says he gives tithes of all that he receives, which again, it, it's more than the law required, which was, you know, the law only required certain things like, like the, you know, a, a tenth of your harvest of crops and, and various other things. Now, now, have you ever been tempted to give your spiritual resume to God, but particularly when you're asking for something uh, uh, really important to you? As though, as though you've certainly earned his, his really considering what you have to bring to him in prayer, right? Something like, God, I go to church every Sunday, almost every Sunday. And also Bible study, I give a tenth of my salary to the church. I also give to crew and RUF. I'm, I'm faithful to my spouse. I'm a good father. I stop at stop signs. I try to go the speed limit. I volunteer in a homeless shelter. You know, things like that. This, just here's my resume on thick paper because that is impressive for some reason. And, and I can't help but kind of imagining, you know, some, some response of, of God. Like, I'm, I'm sorry, are you applying for a job? Do you know what prayer is? Now, God's not like that for real. Um, but, but do you see here, do you, do you see the heart of the Pharisee's problem? And it's important that we do see the heart of the Pharisees' problem because many of us often run into this same problem today. And it's this, that the Pharisee does not believe he can be saved by grace. He doesn't believe it. That, that's what's going on here. He believes he's going to be saved by his own righteousness, his own good works, his own ability to follow God well. You know, by, by what he's done with the life that God's given him, that's the way I'm going to be saved. And, and, and do you remember who, who Jesus is telling this parable to, the, the actual people he's directing it towards? People who were confident in their own righteousness, people who trusted in himself. Now, let's, let's be real. The Pharisees' view here is, is, is the default American view of God, only we typically come to it from the opposite direction. One of the more common things and honest things uh, that people, particularly outside the church, will, will tell me when, when there's a conversation going on and it turns to talk about God somehow, right, is, is they want to say something like, I've not lived very well, right? That's, they're laying out their resume from the opposite direction. I, my resume stinks. I worked at a gas station for two weeks and got fired. You know, like I have a really bad resume. Or, or, or they'll say something like, I, I have done terrible stuff in my life. And, and the understanding, the idea there is that if I had lived better, if I would go to church more, if I would serve in a charity, if I would stop just doing these sinful things that are, you know, particularly bad, then God would accept me. But, but right now, I just, he just won't. And I know that, so I've got to do those things. 
As though good living would justify them before God. Now, many, many in the church, deep down, we, we think the same thing. We know the right words, right? We, we think it's, it's the grace of God for sure. We, we say that confidently, but, but somehow we're thinking, yeah, but I have to earn that grace. Right? I have to earn it. Why do we get it so backwards? Why do we miss this? Um, my, my wife, Laura, and she didn't know I'm telling this story, but <clears throat> my wife, Laura, has always taken fantastic care of her teeth. She brushes twice a day. She flosses every night, and she'll put it out, and I would ignore it. Most of my life, I have done a terrible job of caring for my teeth. Uh, my practice was always this. On the day that I went to the dentist, I would wake up and think, I'm going to the dentist today. I will brush my teeth for 10 minutes. I will floss my teeth. I will spit out the blood that's there because I haven't flushed, brushed my, or flossed my teeth in so long. Uh, and, and I'd go in in the hopes that I'm going to fool the dentist. He will have no idea how, how like, lackadaisical I have been. Uh, he is going to think that I'm doing an amazing job with taking care of my teeth, just like I promised I would last time I was sitting in his chair. But this guy's a dentist, right? He, he's a dentist. He looks at teeth all day. He studied this. He, he knows teeth. He, he can't be fooled by one morning of doing the right thing. Uh, you're right. He just knows. And, and one time I was in there, and once the gig was up, and he's telling me, you know, you really have to do that, all that kind of stuff again, um, I, I asked him, will you go next door where Laura's getting her teeth cleaned right now, and will you just casually, you know, look at her teeth and tell her, listen, we really need you to, like, I really need you to floss your teeth and brush your teeth and care for your teeth as, as good as your husband does. And he goes in there and he does it perfectly. And, and I can hear her from the next room over as she sits up in rage. Are you kidding me? Brian never flosses his teeth. I don't even know if he brushes his teeth. She just went off on him, and, and he just started laughing like crazy. But, but it, was, it was over there. It was fantastic. Any of you ever do this, though? I mean, am I the only one who tries to fool the dentist? No one's going to raise their hand to this, are they? All right, a few of you admitting to this. Um, None of you are my age, though, that admitted to this. Uh, why? Why is that? And it might be some other situation. Why do we try to fool? I mean, if we can't fool him, why do we go through the whole routine every time? And I, I think it's this. It's because we, we want to convince the dentist that we don't really need him. We want to convince him, you know, this, even this appointment's a waste of my time. I do everything right anyway. I mean... This is a waste of my money. I don't know why I'm here. Our, our approach to God, unfortunately, is sometimes very similar. We think, if I can get these things, these sins, if particular sins under control, if I can get some sort of Bible reading routine on a regular basis, then God will accept me. Or we're like the Pharisee, and we're thinking, I do have certain sins under control. I am on top of my Bible reading plan. I'm a week ahead, right? I, I, I'm not as bad a sinner as my friends. Look what they're doing, right? And, and so God must accept me. But what, what we're really doing in, in both of these cases is, is trying to prove to God, I don't need you. Because look at, look at my righteousness. All I needed was you to tell me what to do, and I am nailing it. But the gospel, the, the glorious gospel, tells us that, that God welcomes those who need Him. That God welcomes those who know that they could never make themselves clean on their own. The last thing in the world we ever want to do is try to convince God that we don't need Him. Right? 
That, that Jesus is, is teaching in this parable just that, right? It's those who need God and know they need God who, who receive it. Look, look at verse 13 then. We change to the, <clears throat> the tax collector. He's also in the temple for prayer, uh, but he's far off. He's further from the altar, not feeling worthy to go any closer. He, he doesn't look up to heaven. This was the common way of, uh, of prayer, was to look up. Um, but, but he's feeling the weight of his sin in, in, in an expression of grief and, and woe, and he, and he beats his chest, right? Just, it's just a sign of grief, and he, and he prays this simple prayer. It, it's so short. It's just four words in the Greek, seven in the English, at least in the ESV. And, and he prays, God... Be merciful to me, a sinner. His prayer begins the same as the Pharisee with the name of God, and yet we get the sense that there's a lot more reverence with the name on his lips there due to the posture that he comes to God with uh, and due to the prayer that he actually prays and due to the way he actually signs uh, this prayer off at the end. He, he identifies himself not with this resume of good works, but he identifies himself as a sinner to God. His knowledge of self here points to the knowledge of God. For, for as Martin Lloyd-Jones Lloyd said, there's only one way to know that we are sinners, and, and that is to have some dim, glimmering conception of God. Some idea of who God is. Similar to the prophet in Isaiah, right? 6-5, where he sees the majesty and the holiness of the Lord sitting on the throne and out of him just pours these words. He says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He, he sees God as he really is, and it's crushing to him because suddenly he sees himself as he really is as well. In other words, the, the tax collector here sees himself rightly before God as a guilty sinner who is desperately in need of mercy. And if you feel sorry for him for having to bear the weight of his sin in this moment, don't. Do, do not feel sorry for him because knowing his sin, feeling the weight of his sin, it is the best thing to ever happen to him because it is only when we know the true depths of our own depravity that we begin to look outside of ourselves, that we begin to, to, to look for redemption somewhere other than in our own good works. We stop trying to earn it and, and then we turn our, our gaze to Jesus for forgiveness and for redemption. As one of my favorite pre-Reformation theologians, St. Basil the Great, <clears throat> Basil, St. Basil the Great once wrote, humility often saves a sinner who has committed many terrible transgressions. Basil does not mean being humble saves you. He, he means that humility drives the sinner to the one who can save her, drives her to the Lord Jesus. Now, before we move on, I, I do want to point out something significant, significant in, in the prayer itself. He, he, here's what he prays. He says, be merciful to me, right? There, there are two Greek words that are translated merciful throughout our Bibles. The more common one of the two uh, means this. It means to be tender-hearted or tender and compassionate, right? It's, it's when you see like a a mother caring for a child most of the time, uh, that's what we see, that, that tender mercy, tender and, and, and compassionate. But that's not the term in this passage here, in this prayer. Here the Greek word is heloskomai, 
It's a term that means to make atonement for. It goes in a very different direction. It's, it's like he's praying this, God, redeem me. Or, or God, make sacrifice for me because I'm a sinner. I, I need you to do this. It, it's a, a prayer for atonement, which, which fits the setting of the temple where these animals are being brought in and slaughtered in order to make atonement for, for the sins of the people. In fact, there's a, a whole system throughout the Old Testament of, of people's sin being placed on goats and bulls and sacrifice but for the sake of simplicity that takes us on a very long rabbit trail for the sake of simplicity I just want you to understand that this contrite man he's not asking for mercy on the basis of his own good good deeds right he's not asking for mercy on the basis of absolutely nothing he knows it's costly he's asking it on the basis of God's commitment to be merciful to sinners through the sacrifices taking place in the temple sacrifices that foreshadow what Jesus would ultimately do for his people, making atonement once for all for the sins of his people upon the cross. That's what he's praying. And, and, and so then, remember the questions we asked at the start today. Who, who, who really is righteous before God? Who is justified and has received the mercy of God in salvation? In verse 14, Jesus gives an answer to those questions. He says, I'll tell you. This man went down, speaking of the tax collector, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. You see how crazy this is, right? Jesus says the justified man is the sinner who approaches God with hope of receiving unmerited mercy. While the good man, right, the the one we would all call righteous and look up to, you know, self-righteously approaches God on the basis of his own merit, we're told he is not justified. In other words, the tax collector who identified him as a sinner received exactly what he prayed for. And what did he pray for? The mercy of God. What the Pharisee did wasn't wrong. All the things he listed, right, tithing, that wasn't wrong. Fasting, not wrong. Not, not extorting people. Sure, that's good. We don't want you to extort people. This is all good. But it counts for nothing before a holy God. Nothing. It, it doesn't negate that we're sinners. It doesn't merit anything from God towards us. It doesn't earn us one bit. But Jesus calls the tax collector justified. To, to be justified, that's a, a legal term that means counted or considered righteous whatever charges were against you are are no longer there they're they're gone the the punishment has been paid it's over God declares this sinner justified on the basis of Jesus death on the cross something that's still yet to come right the promise of it at this point whereas Ephesians 2 8 and 9 uh, puts so succinctly beautifully says for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is the gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast. And again, what's more shocking really here is that the Pharisee, according to Jesus, is not justified. I spent a night in the downtown Houston jail when I was in college. It's a long story. I told it one time in a sermon. Some of you know it. If not, I'm happy to tell you any time. It's not fun. I wouldn't recommend jail. The Yelp Review, one star. Um, So while I was in there that night, the there wasn't a lot of social distancing in this time, so they'd squeeze like 50 of us into this tiny little room, and, uh, and you just wait there. And, and throughout the night, I, I was surprised how many of the 50 or so people crammed in this room with me declared themselves to be innocent. 
almost the entire room was innocent people. It's hard to believe, but it was. They were all innocent. Uh, and, and yet what was interesting is that declaring themselves innocent didn't matter one bit. Didn't matter how loud they said it, who they said it to, how many other people in that room they convinced, oh, you are innocent. It, it didn't matter because they, they only needed one person to declare them innocent, and, and that's the judge. They needed one person to, to declare them justified, to pronounce them not guilty, and that's the judge. In our passage, we, we heard the Pharisee declare himself righteous. And it accounted for nothing. It didn't matter one bit because he was not declared righteous by God. He was not justified by God. And that's what really matters. And so then self-righteousness will save not a single soul. Not one. Only the righteousness of Christ applied to us will make us righteous. And that balm, that medicine is given only to the sick who come asking for the mercy of God. But it is given to all who come and ask for the mercy of God genuinely. The last line of our passage is kind of a proverbial summary of, of the parable. As Jesus says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. That is so backwards feeling, isn't it? Dane Ortlund, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, puts it this way. He says, it's the most counterintuitive aspect of Christianity that we are declared right with God not once we begin to get our act together, but once we collapse into honest acknowledgement that we never will. Don't miss the fact in this parable that the tax collector is justified in this moment. Right? That's when Jesus declares him justified, long before we ever see the changes that God may do in his life. Long before there's anything that he might be able to write on his own resume to, to present to God, right? The, look what I've done that's so wonderful. See, because as, as Philip Ryken so beautifully puts it, he says this, sinners cannot be saved by what sinners do. Sinner speaking to you. Sinner, you will only be justified. You will only be forgiven. You will only be saved by what Jesus can do for you. After all, did you, did you notice the, the verbs that are used in the Pharisees' prayer here? They're all active, right? Who does the tithing? I tithe, I fast. I do this, I do that. They, he does it all himself. On the other hand, there's only one verb in the tax collector's prayer, and it's, and it's passive. The action's not done for him. He's requesting it to be done to him, for him. God, be merciful to me. It's a passive use. And, and so Jesus holds up humility then as this, this character of heart worth praying for, a character of heart worth, worth seeking after. And, and, and we see this, this call to God's people to be humble throughout the Scriptures, right? We, God calls His people to be humble in 2 Chronicles 7.14. He says he'll give favor to the humble in Proverbs 3.34. And in Micah 6.8, we're told to walk humbly with God. In Ephesians 4.2, God calls us to act with all humility. He tells us in humility to count others as more significant than ourselves in Philippians 2.3. Colossians 3.12 instructs us as God's chosen ones to put on humility. And in James, we are told to humble ourselves before the Lord. 1 Peter 5.5, we're told God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And we could go on and on across the scriptures from the beginning to the end to see that God desires his people to be humble people. 
Church, we need to learn humility before others, but before that, and especially, we need to learn especially what it looks like to come to God with humility, with broken and contrite hearts. So yes, I'm, I'm talking to you, each and every one of us, for, for when Jesus calls us to be humble, you are no exception. Neither am I. As Zach Eswine so often confesses, one of my favorite phrases of an author is, he says, I am, we must come to God and, and confess, I am not the Christ. And let us add to that, I am not the Christ, but I am in desperate need of the Christ. Always. Christian, it would be wise to, to make this a daily prayer that we pray, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. A sinner who is also a saint because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. A, a sinner is a saint because of the mercy of God alone. So if you're here today and you don't have faith in Jesus, I want you to know that, that Jesus stands ready to receive any who will humbly come to him asking for mercy. He will. Let us pray. Father, please pull back the covers. Lord, lay us bear so that whatever self-righteous works we are tempted to, to hold up in the hopes of impressing you we, we would not instead Lord give us right understanding of you and right understanding of ourselves and make us contrite make us humble make us confident only in our need for your mercy and our expectation that you will give it because of your steadfast love and because of the work of Jesus on the cross and because of your promise and the covenant so, Lord, may we receive that by faith. And God, be merciful to us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.